welcome back to Freud in Focus, a podcast from the Freud Museum London, hosted by my colleague Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Ruers, produced by Carolina Heller. Thank you so much to everyone who has left a comment on our website, on Twitter and Instagram about our previous episode. We're really pleased that so many of you tuned in and from all over the world too. We're very grateful for your feedback. In the last episode, we scratched the surface of this text, Beyond the Pleasure Principle. We looked at the context that the paper was written in, at Freud's concept of the pleasure principle, and its previous mentions in his works. We also looked at the childhood game, Fort Da, which were observations that Freud had made of his grandson that became quite an integral part of this paper. Well, this week we're going to be taking it one step further, as we begin to investigate the compulsion to repeat, and we'll return again to this idea of going beyond the pleasure principle. You could say that last week Freud served us up a starter, something to whet our appetites. Well, today we're going to be tucking into the main course, the compulsion to repeat. I suggested last week that Freud's description of the Fort Dar game that he observed his grandson playing was a kind of red herring in the search for something beyond the pleasure principle. But it also has another function. In the emphasis on the repetition of the unpleasurable portion of the game, which as a rule appeared by itself, Freud is also clearing the way for a more wide-ranging discussion of this compulsion to repeat, which he suggests might not fit so comfortably within the programme of the pleasure principle. Here, Freud takes his point of departure from the clinic. He describes the fact that psychoanalysis had to develop from its initial role as an art of interpretation when faced with certain therapeutic problems. To this effect, Freud maintains that he was often struck by the fact that patients seemed to repeat repressed material which was connected to some portion of infantile sexual life in their relationship with their physician. The emergence of these reproductions in analysis, as Freud called them, marked the point at which the original neurosis had transformed into a transference neurosis. What was remarkable in this is the fact that patients seemed to repeat experiences which could never have been associated with pleasure or with the satisfaction of instinctual impulses, even if they had since been repressed. How can this be accounted for economically then, under the rubric of the pleasure principle? In typical fashion, Freud uses the clinic as a window to everyday life and suggests that this phenomenon is also observable in normal behaviour and is often referred to as fate or even a demonic power that seems to dog us. Why do some people's relationships 
seem to always have the same unhappy outcome. Like the person whose various friendships repeatedly end in betrayals. Or someone whose love affairs seem to run the same tragic course. Freud suggests that for the most part, our fate is arranged by ourselves and determined by early infantile influences. We unconsciously arrange our human relationships so that these repetitions will be perpetually acted upon us. Freud himself acknowledges the fact that he needs to be courageous in order to bring these repetitions into the spotlight, as they will provide a challenge to some of his most fundamental theories. Previously, we had discussed that Beyond the Pleasure Principle is a text that looks forward as well as backwards. One text that it looks backwards to is the Project for a Scientific Psychology, part of the Letters to Wilhelm Fleece, which was written in 1895. Could you tell us a little bit more about the relationship between these two texts? The influence of the project, which was unpublished in Freud's lifetime on Beyond the Pleasure Principle, is wide-ranging. It's almost as if Freud is unearthing a set of arguments that had lay buried under the weight of subsequent theoretical constructions. It seems fitting that this early text, which introduces the theory of deferred action, that notion that the meaning and psychical charge of an event can be activated after it has occurred, retroactively, if you will, should have such an impact on our text, written as it was 25 years later. I want to draw out one of these deferred actions here. We saw last week how unpleasure is associated with an increase in unbound or free-floating excitation in the mind, an idea which was first sketched out in the project. Freud will develop this connection further in his description of how the psyche attempts to deal with trauma. We tend to be left traumatised by an event because, when such an event takes place, we are not in a state of preparedness that would enable us to deal with the flood of excitation that comes upon us. Normally we would get a warning signal in the form of anxiety that would prime us for the substantial amount of psychical binding that our system would need to undertake in order to organise and process this flood of excitation, which would otherwise overwhelm our psychical apparatus. So it's the element of surprise that can leave us exposed. Although, just to clarify, Freud does suggest that even if we are prepared psychically, there are limits to our capacity to process these traumatic experiences. This explanation introduces a startling exploration of the mechanism behind the experience of dreams in the traumatic neuroses. Dreams which seem to make us re-suffer the traumatic event by replicating it, 
The purpose of such dreams is, according to Freud, for us to produce the anxiety which was missing when the event first took place, so as to master the event, as it were, retrospectively in our minds. So we encounter the notion of deferred action again here. The production of a cause as a result of an effect. This notion of the preparedness for anxiety would appear later as the concept of signal anxiety in Freud's Inhibitions, Symptoms and Anxiety. The idea that dreams such as these would seek to make the psyche re-experience trauma in order to replicate the process of psychical binding, which failed to take place previously, suggests for Freud that there is a function that is more primitive and independent of the purpose of gaining pleasure and avoiding unpleasure. In the course of his argument, Freud also hints at a revision to his theory on dreams, which he originally published 20 years before Beyond the Pleasure Principle. It's widely known that Freud theorized that dreams are the fulfillments of a wish. But let's take a look at the text where he begins to reference dreams. And if you'd like to find this at home, you can find it in the Standard Edition, Volume 18, page 32 to 33. This would seem to be the place, then, at which to admit, for the first time, an exception to the proposition that dreams are fulfillments of wishes. Anxiety dreams, as I have shown repeatedly and in detail, offer no such exception. Nor do punishment dreams, for they merely replace the forbidden wish fulfillment by the appropriate punishment for it. That is to say, they fulfill the wish of the sense of guilt, which is the reaction to the repudiated impulse. But it is impossible to classify as wish fulfillments the dreams we have been discussing, which occur in traumatic neuroses, or the dreams during psychoanalyses, which bring to memory the psychical traumas of childhood. They arise rather in obedience to the compulsion to repeat, though it is true that in analysis, that compulsion is supported by the wish, which is encouraged by suggestion, to conjure up what has been forgotten and repressed. Thus it would seem that the function of dreams, which consists in setting aside any motifs that might interrupt sleep by fulfilling the wishes of the disturbing impulses is not their original function. It would not be possible for them to perform that function until the whole of mental life had accepted the dominance of the pleasure principle. If there is a beyond the pleasure principle, it is only consistent to grant that there was also a time before the purpose of dreams 
was the fulfillment of wishes. This would imply no denial of the later function. But if once this general rule has been broken, a further question arises. May not dreams, which, with a view to the psychical binding of traumatic impressions, obey the compulsion to repeat? May not such dreams occur outside analysis as well? And the reply can only be a decided affirmative. I think this is quite a spectacular moment for Freud. Um, he seems to be revising his most important theories of dream analysis in front of our eyes. How significant is this moment, Tom? Well, it certainly does seem significant, doesn't it? The idea that all dreams are wish fulfillments, which first appears in the interpretation of dreams, seemed to be a foundational argument for Freud. He had been able to explain normal anxiety dreams, and even punishment dreams, which at face value seem to have little to do with wish fulfillments, as products of the tensions between different psychical entities. However, Freud appears at a loss here to fit the dreams which repeat traumatic experiences into this definition. If anxiety dreams can be characterised by a feeling of unpleasure that arises as a result of the expression of a, of a forbidden wish, the anxiety which arises in dreams resulting from traumatic neuroses have no connection to the act of wishing. The original purpose of dreams, which seeks to help the process of psychical binding, functions, for Freud, in obedience with the compulsion to repeat, rather than following the dictates of the pleasure principle. This function seems to operate alongside, or perhaps in the margins of, the fulfilment of wishes, and concerns that area of mental life that has not accepted the domination of the pleasure principle. In sketching out this notion of the compulsion to repeat, and how it manifests in the clinic, in everyday life, and in dreams, Freud has effectively been clearing the way for an exploration of what this beyond might represent. Before we move on, I'd just like to get your views on the first paragraph of part four, when Freud says, What follows is speculation often far-fetched speculation, which the reader will consider or dismiss according to his individual predilection. It is further an attempt to follow out an idea consistently, out of curiosity, to see where it will lead. That's quite an exciting road that he's taking us down with him. This seems to be an important signpost in the text, What's Freud's intention here, especially in relation to the psychoanalytic methodology that you'd outlined last week? I think it's worth noting that the, the short paragraph you just read, in which Freud introduces this idea of speculation, 
leads into the crucial dream revision passage that you mentioned earlier. The path meanders, taking its course via discussions on the origin of consciousness, and it contains many repeats and returns, such as those echoes of the Project for a Scientific Psychology. It's kind of labyrinthine in that respect, or perhaps even overdetermined. But it does appear that Freud is suggesting the need for a different methodology in order to proceed. The idea of speculation seems to operate like a kind of siren song in Freud's work that attempts to seduce him into abandoning the firm ground of evidence-based practice and to take a leap into the unknown. Let's just reflect for a moment on this uneasy relationship that Freud has with the idea of speculation. In a letter to Lou Andres Salome, Freud describes himself as a mole tunnelling away in the dark recesses of scientific knowledge, who would be blinded by the bright light of speculation that Salome herself was capable of. Now, there's a feeling of both resignation and envy in this description, which is also emphasised in his continuing relationship to Goethe, who was able to hit upon the deepest truths that moles like Freud would only be able to reach through lonely uncertainty and restless groping. Freud wrote of how he, he had had to restrain his speculative tendencies for the sake of his profession, while suggesting that the construction of speculative systems is a characteristic tendency of paranoiacs. Yet despite the dangers, Freud chooses to give free rein to his speculative tendencies in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, a move that he would look back on later with uneasiness. But why was this the case? The answer might be found, retroactively, in his late masterpiece, Analysis Terminable and Interminable, where he draws on Goethe once more and summons up the witch metapsychology in order to understand how an instinct might be brought into harmony with the ego. Without metapsychological speculation, he writes, we shall not get another step forward. Freud's ambivalent attitude to speculation is too rich and complex to do justice to here, but I'd like to briefly draw on the Greek myth of Daedalus and Icarus to help us. Daedalus, the builder of the labyrinth in Crete, that essentially mole-like activity, makes wings for himself and his son to fly away and escape from imprisonment. His son Icarus, exalted by his sense of freedom and inspiration, flies too close to the sun, which melts the glue that held his wings together and causes him to fall to his death in the sea. 
I think the tension between the work of the mole and the flight of Icarus can be observed not only in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, but also throughout the whole body of Freud's work. This introduction of the notion of speculation leads into some fascinating and, and intriguing discussions around the origin of consciousness and evolution of simple organisms. As you mentioned, there are many different readings that this speculative approach can, can open up. But in the interests of time, I'd like to proceed to the point in the text where Freud introduces the instincts or drives, and often we would be using these two terms pretty interchangeably. Well, that's right. I mean, the, the, the realm of the drives is really the final destination of these speculative manoeuvres. The manifestations of the compulsion to repeat that Freud had been exploring earlier in the text exhibit what he describes as an instinctual character. Now, this is one example of where the use of the word instinct rather than drive to translate the German word trieb doesn't quite work. What Freud really means here is that these manifestations are, are driven by something, that they have a force propelling them. Hence the idea that there seems to be a demonic power at work when these manifestations appear. From this position, Freud concludes that it seems that an instinct is an urge inherent in all organic life to restore an earlier state of things. Instincts are therefore conservative in nature. This statement really represents, I think, the turning point of the text. And it's fascinating how Freud introduces it. It appears as a suspicion that Freud is unable to escape from, almost as if he had opened up Pandora's box with his speculative excesses and had released something that should have remained hidden. Despite this, true to his word, he will have the courage to follow his argument through. It's a short, logical step from here to the idea that, if inanimate things existed before living ones, then the aim of all life is death. The influence of the external world creates for the organism a series of ever more complicated detours before it is able to reach the final aim of death. If the outside world does not precipitate it, we all die, after all, for internal reasons. And just to support that, I will be reading an extract now, which you can find in the Standard Edition on page 39. The implications in regard to the great groups of instincts which, as we believe, lie behind the phenomena of life in organisms must appear no less bewildering. The hypothesis of self-preservative instincts, such as we attribute to all living beings, stands in marked opposition to the idea 
that instinctual life as a whole serves to bring about death. Seen in this light, the theoretical importance of the instincts of self-preservation, of self-assertion, and of mastery greatly diminishes. They are component instincts, whose function it is to assure that the organism shall follow its own path to death, and to ward off any possible ways of returning to inorganic existence, other than those which are imminent in the organism itself. We have no longer to reckon with the organism's puzzling determination, so hard to fit into any context, to maintain its own existence in the face of every obstacle. What we are left with is the fact that the organism wishes to die only in its own fashion. Thus, these guardians of life, too, were originally the myrmidons of death. Hence arises the paradoxical situation that the living organism struggles most energetically against events, dangers in fact, which might help it to attain its life's aim rapidly by a kind of short circuit. Such behaviour is, however, precisely what characterises purely instinctual as contrasted with intelligent efforts. This, what, what I have just read out, and what you had previously described, Tom, is a remarkable notion, and probably one of the most controversial aspects of this text. It defeats so much of what we understand biologically and evolutionarily about living things. We're clearly on controversial ground here, aren't we? But there is a ruthless logic to it all. If all organisms die for internal reasons, then the argument that the self-preservative instincts should maintain life in order for us to die our own death, as it were, does seem to hold. There's a stoic morality in this, an acceptance of the tragic dimension of existence, as well as an implicit avowal of the value of life, despite the torments that might be thrown at us from the outside world. For me, this paragraph really chimes in with the historical time and place of the text, written as it was in the shadow of war and pandemic. But underneath this cloud of pessimism, there is still the place for the idea of the wish. This thread that runs through psychoanalysis, because it's the organism's wish that it should die only in its own fashion. I mentioned Pandora's box earlier, didn't I? And, and you'll remember that the, the final thing to appear from Pandora's box after all the causes of suffering, was hope. The end of part five really mirrors the myth of Pandora, 
in Saving the Best Till Last. Freud maintains that the sexual instincts do not fit so neatly into this definition. There is an imperative to preserve life, which can be traced through the activity of the germ cells, which, although conservative in nature, in that they seek to replicate earlier forms, are also at the service of an instinct to produce and maintain life. We have here an intimation of the new dual instinct theory that Freud will reveal in part six of the text, which we'll be concentrating on next week. Okay, so I'm just going to read this final paragraph of part five. I will add only a word to suggest that the efforts of Eros to combine organic substances into ever larger unities probably provide a substitute for this instinct towards perfection, whose existence we cannot admit. The phenomena that are attributed to it seem capable of explanation by these efforts of Eros, taken in conjunction with the results of repression. It says here in the footnote that Freud added this part in 1923, so three years after Beyond the Pleasure Principle was published. Freud did not then use the word Eros, which will be one of the two new instincts, in the first five parts of the edition. It appears for the first time in part six, along with the first mention of the death instinct. And we now know that Freud had a completed text ready in 1919, which did not include what is now part six. This new part six, which contains Freud's final speculative breakthrough, was the result of a later revision before the text was sent to print. Tom, can you help explain this crucial textual revision? One way of understanding this revision is to think about what appeared in between the two versions. It seems very significant to me that Freud wrote The Uncanny in the hiatus of the composition of Beyond the Pleasure Principle. The Uncanny is a text that deals with hauntings, doppelgangers, repetitions and intimations of death. I think we could view the uncanny as a text which is crucial for the working through of some of the material that Freud uncovered in the first five parts of Beyond the Pleasure Principle, and which helped to lead to the final speculative breakthrough of the new part six. We might also compare this break in the text to that of the composer Richard Wagner's break in the composition of his four-part ring cycle, because he needed to develop a new musical language in order to write the final love duet of the opera Siegfried. In this respect, the uncanny could be compared to Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, in that each work helps to bring about the final resolution of a larger and seemingly more far-reaching project. Ironically, the influence of each of these works far outweighs their original purpose. Perhaps this is all a little too speculative, but if so, 
there is at least a clear precedent. And so we return to speculation. What an excellent way to end this session on the compulsion to repeat. Thank you, Tom. And thank you at home for joining us again for Freud in Focus with Tom DeRose and Jamie Ruers. This podcast was produced by Carolina Heller. Don't forget, you can drop us a line at the bottom of our podcast page on our website, freud.org.uk. If you have any questions, we'll begin the next session by answering some of those, so do feel free to add to the conversation. You can subscribe to the Freud Museum wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll be welcoming you again on the 17th of March for Episode 3, The New Jewel Instinct Theory and the Appearance of the Death Drive in Beyond the Pleasure Principle.